Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all of your blessings. Thank you for the invitation that, just like these children we had up front, Lord, that you want each one of us to enter your kingdom as a child, in childlike faith, and that by simply believing, we are welcomed in. So thank you, Lord, that by faith all things are possible. And so I pray more this morning, Lord, for the faith to, again, uh, believe your word, to receive it, and that by your power, you will take that word and do great things in and through our lives. And so bless this word, I pray. Speak through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this past week, an international team of scientists published the first findings made possible by the new Netherlands-based LOFAR telescope. The LOFAR telescope uses a new technology that picks up before undiscovered galaxies. And so to date, the LOFAR telescope has discovered an additional 300,000 previously unknown galaxies, which have now been added to our map of the universe. Now, 300,000 sounds like a big number, doesn't it? Sounds like a lot. We're talking about galaxies here, remember? Sounds like a lot of galaxies, but that is a drop in the bucket when you add it to the already over 1 billion galaxies that have already been discovered by the Hubble telescope. So we know that there's at least 1,300,000 galaxies out there in addition to our own. Big numbers, right? But just remember, when we're talking about those numbers, we're not talking about planets, but galaxies. So consider that just our own Milky Way galaxy has an estimated 100 billion planets within it. So if that's the average number of planets in a galaxy, multiply that number by the number of known galaxies... And the vastness of our universe is just mind-boggling, isn't it? The numbers are literally astronomical. That's why we use that term. So think about that. Now, in Genesis 1.16, we read about, or we can read about God's creation of the countless billions of galaxies. And how does God state this absolutely monumental accomplishment? With just five words. Five words. And he made the stars. Incredible. Five words, and he made the stars. That's all it says. Almost as an afterthought, and he made the stars. Try to imagine all of the work and the activity and the power and the energy and the matter that went into creating all of these countless billions of galaxies in our universe, yet summarized in just five crisp words. And so now, in stark contrast, there is one topic that God's Word has a great deal to say about, and that is the tabernacle. The next picture you'll see is of that tabernacle. And on the details of this tabernacle, we find not just one verse or a chapter, but actually throughout Scripture, we find 50 chapters devoted entirely to the tabernacle and the functions of worship and sacrifice within the tabernacle. 50 chapters. Now think about this for a second. Why would God only give us five words to describe his creation of the galaxies and 50 chapters devoted to the tabernacle? Well, the reason is this. The tabernacle has to do with God's relationship to man and man to God, whereas the stars do not. God is much more interested in redemption than in creation. 
Saving our souls from sin so that we can be in a right relationship to God is far more important to him than the shaping of all of the galaxies combined. Isn't that incredible? God is all about our redemption, and that's where he devotes the energy and the direction of Scripture towards. So now let's begin to learn about this tabernacle a little bit more. First off, what was it? What was the tabernacle? Well, as you can see, it was an elaborate mobile structure used by Israel for some 500 years as the center of worship. Later on, it would be replaced by the permanent structure known as Solomon's Temple. Now, the glory cloud of God's presence, or a theophany, would hover over the tabernacle whenever it was set up. You can see in the artist's rendering of this picture a a glowing light emanating, or a cloud from above the tabernacle. And every time it was set up, this theophany, a pillar of God's presence, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, would hover over the tabernacle. But then when the cloud would rise up again and begin to move, that was the signal that it's time to go. So pack up, they would pack everything up. Some 8,500 men were devoted principally to the job of packing up and transporting the tabernacle alone. So it was an elaborate, elaborate system that was involved in, in taking it down, in transporting it carefully. And then when the cloud would stop, that was the signal, this is the place to set it back up. And so those men would set the tabernacle back up, and again the glory cloud of God would descend back upon it. So now, what was the tabernacle's principal purpose? Well, turn with me this morning to Exodus 25. During the 40 days that Moses was on Mount Sinai, we're rewinding the script a little bit from our last two sermons because this happened in between. So when Moses is on the mountain, this is just before coming back down where the people are worshiping the golden calf, God gives him a series of instructions. And this is what we find in Exodus 25. And there in verse 8 we read, Then have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. So here we see the purpose of the tabernacle. It was to enable God to dwell among his people. God wanted to be with his people, but in such a way as to not destroy his people. Because remember, for a holy and perfect God to dwell with an unholy and sinful people, well, it's extremely dangerous for the people. If you recall in last week's sermon, how God told Moses that he would not go with Israel up into the promised land because he said the stiff-necked and rebellious people were just so bad that chances were they were going to rebel again and he would have to destroy them along the way. And so, of course, Moses, he wasn't as afraid of destruction as he was of living apart from God's presence. And so Moses said, Lord, no deal. We won't take one step forward without you. God was pleased by that. God was pleased with Moses' response, and he said to him simply, I will go with you. And so the tabernacle was the means by how God would go with them. So now, next question. Why was the exact design and details of the tabernacle and its contents so important? Why were they so important that all of these chapters in Scripture are devoted to describing them down to the most minute details? We read in verse 9, Exodus 25, Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Why the precision? Why did it need to be so exact? 
Well, we skip ahead into the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, and we're given this explanation. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Did you know that there is a temple in heaven? Did you know this? This scripture reveals to us that there is something in heaven that the tabernacle is being patterned after, a copy of, a replica, if you will. Well, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, we're given more insight into this. When John wrote in his vision, he saw this. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And so when God gave Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, they weren't just some random dimensions or details that he pulled out of thin air. They were all after the pattern of the temple of heaven. But notice the sanctuary is just a shadow of what's in heaven. Quite simply, we cannot even begin to imagine or fathom the glory, the dimensions, the scope, the grandeur of what the temple of heaven must look like. But yet, here, looking at the tabernacle, we can get some idea. And at the center of all of this worship... The whole point of it was at the very heart of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Now, in this next slide, you'll see an artist's rendition of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. It will have been something like this. Of course, it's been lost to history. No known photographs of it are given, so this is based off the descriptions given in Scripture. But it looked something like this. And so it was kept in the Holy of Holies, the center, most inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the most hallowed ground for the people of Israel. And the reason it was so hallowed was this was the place where Yahweh's divine presence rested principally upon the Ark of the Covenant. So now, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Well, let's continue to read. Verse 10. Have them make an Ark of Acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Now, as I said earlier, do you know what a cubit is? You know what the measurement is? Well, it's an approximation, elbow to fingertip, or 18 inches. This was a cubit. Now, a cubit, of course, could be somewhat subjective depending on whose arm was being used, right? So that's why we would break it down to 18 inches. So that gives us a pretty good idea of the size of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we're going to just skip through verses 12 to 21, which go on to describe the elements of the Ark, how it was carried by golden poles, that on top of the Ark was the mercy seat or atonement cover made of pure gold. Then there were the angelic beings, the cherubim, made of solid gold, whose wings were spread over the mercy seat, faces turned downwards, looking towards it. On every level, it was an extravagant, costly, majestic piece of furniture. But it was much more than a piece of furniture. If it still existed on earth today, it would be considered absolutely priceless. Much later on in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant disappeared permanently just before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Some records indicate that it's possible the prophet Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it away. But theories abound as to what happened to it thereafter. 
Now, my son Declan and I, we have this thing where for the last number of years, we enjoy watching the History Channel show The Curse of Oak Island together. Anyone else watch that show? A few of you have seen it. Okay, so I've got a couple of people on there. On this program, there's two brothers, the, the Lagina brothers, and they're searching for this long-lost treasure believed to have been buried centuries ago on Oak Island, a small island off the coast of Nova Scotia. Now, one of the many far-fetched theories, and there's many on the show, is that the Knights Templar found the Ark of the Covenant buried beneath Jerusalem during the time of the Crusades, and then they took it under their protection, and over time they squirreled it away and hid it in an elaborate uh, treasure vault on Oak Island. Now, the problem with all of these theories is, as fantastic as they are and as exciting as they are to follow, I really don't believe that they or anyone else will ever find the Ark of the Covenant. Because the Bible actually gives us a clue or an indication of where the Ark is today. And it's in the second half of the verse I read earlier about John's vision of the temple in heaven. Revelation eleven nineteen. John wrote, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. So, you put the pieces together, and I believe that just like the tree of life was transplanted from the Garden of Eden to heaven, because again, we find the tree of life in Revelation, I believe that in the same way the Ark of the Covenant was airlifted to heaven as well, after having served its purpose on earth. That's my theory. But whatever the case, the Ark of the Covenant was powerful and it was potentially deadly. It was hidden away in a room, the Holy of Holies, that only the high priest could enter and then only once per year. Even he had to conceal the beauty of the Ark by the smoke of incense that he would light. Or, he was warned, he would die. 1 Samuel 6.19 tells us a few of these cautionary tales. Several men who had the audacity to actually look inside the ark, 70 men, all of them were struck dead. You also couldn't touch the ark of the covenant or you'd be struck dead. 1 Samuel 6 also tells us of a man named Uzzah who when he had reached out his hand to steady the ark because he was afraid it would fall while it was being transported, he reached out his hand, he touched the ark, and he was struck dead. So it begs the question, why have this majestic, beautiful ark if nobody is supposed to look at it, touch it, or even get too close to it? Well, there's a few reasons. The beauty of the ark represented the beauty of God. The purity of the gold represented the purity of God. He's holy, he's righteous, and he's pure. But guess who wasn't? The children of Israel. Guess who else isn't? That's right, you and me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's principally what the ark is all about, the glory of God. It is glorious, it is magnificent, it is powerful, it is pure, it is holy, it is, it is deadly. All of these things that make up the nature and character of God were embodied in the ark of the covenant. And so... Not ancient Israel and not us on our own merit would deserve to get close to the glory of God, to touch it, to look at it, or even get too close. It was a powerful reminder to Israel of God's holiness and the fact that sin separates us from him. But that wasn't the only message that God wanted to communicate to Israel and to us through the ark. 
Because right there on the top of the ark, there on this beautiful yet unapproachable throne of God, right there was the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Now some translations call it the atonement cover. It's another way of saying the same thing. This cover or seat is the only place where atonement for man's sin could be made so that they could receive God's mercy and enter his presence. Exodus 25 verses 21 to 22 says, You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above, from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony. So it was there that God said he would meet with Moses, meet with the high priest, and there he would speak the words of life. But how exactly was this mercy to be obtained? What was the system by which this was done? Well, it was only by the shedding of innocent blood. Hebrews 9.22 states, According to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now let me explain the rather elaborate process to you in a condensed Reader's Digest version, because there are many, many details. This next slide, you'll see a picture of a priest in the midst of this extremely elaborate sacrificial system. Leviticus 16 describes that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, who the first one was Aaron, the high priest would make a special sacrifice for the sins of all the people, the entire nation. Now, ordinarily, he would wear his distinctive high priestly garments with the ephod and the jewels and all of the the fancy adornments, but on the Day of Atonement, he would put those aside, he would bathe himself, he would then put on a special white linen garment with a white linen sash and a linen white turban. He would then make a sacrifice of a young bull. He would take the blood of that bull and a censer full of burning coals from the altar of sacrifice. He would take two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and enter the tabernacle. Then he would put that incense on the fire of the altar of incense so that the smoke of the incense would conceal the ark. Remember, he could not see it, or if he did, he could die. So this was to obscure the ark in the smoke. Then he would pass through the veil and enter into the Holy of Holies. Now, I I cannot stress this enough. Right now, the high priest knows that his life is forfeit the moment he enters through there. He is all at the Lord's mercy at this point. This was serious business with God, something that he would have spent days and weeks preparing for. Serious business. For in fact, he knew what was on the line his very life. He would have little bells, in fact, tied to his robes so that those outside could listen to hear if the bells were still tinkling, indicating that he was still alive and moving. They also later on would even tie a cord around his foot just in case he was struck dead and needed to be pulled out because no one else dared enter the Holy of Holies. Now, once inside the Holy of Holies... You'll see in the next slide that there he did the most important thing. He sprinkled the blood of the bull on the front of the mercy seat. There he would sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now, there were many more sacrifices to follow, 
there was a goat and a ram, all following, again, a precise order and sequence. Only the high priest could do this. Only he could obtain God's mercy and forgiveness for the people by going through the right steps and rituals and, again, sprinkling the blood of the innocent animal on the mercy seat. It was all about this. It all centered here on this day of atonement and upon the mercy seat. Because you see, there were, there were other sacrifices that were made throughout the year. Hundreds of them. Thousands of them, in fact. But if the high priest failed in even the smallest detail on this special day, all of those other sacrifices would have meant nothing. Nothing. Everything depended upon the day of atonement. Everything depended on the high priest entering the Holy of Holies, covering the mercy seat with the innocent blood of the one who died in their place so that they could receive mercy. Now that's what took place on the Day of Atonement. I know it seems like a lot of details. Believe me, there are a whole lot more. I know it seems like a lot of work. This is an elaborate, painstaking process that they had to go to. And I know what else it seems like, a lot of blood. This is a blood-soaked procedure through and through. There, it's, it's bloody business. There are animals dying, there's blood being sprinkled, poured out, you name it. There is blood throughout this. Well, as Lewis Sperry Schaefer once said, anyone can devise a plan by which good people may go to heaven. But only God can devise a plan whereby sinners, who are his enemies can go to heaven. You know, it's no easy thing for a hopelessly sinful people to be reconciled to a perfectly holy God. But God made a way for Israel through that first covenant, which all foreshadowed the second and final covenant yet to come. For later on through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 31, he prophesied, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it upon their hearts. A new covenant, a second covenant, a better covenant yet to come, all foreshadowed in the first covenant. Now, as we already noted in Hebrews 8 verse 5, the tabernacle itself was only a copy or a shadow of what's in heaven. In the same way, every detail of the first covenant, and I mean every last one of them, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of details, but every last one of them foreshadowed what was yet to come in the second covenant through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, it says that Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus became our high priest But Jesus did something far more than what any high priest could do. For the high priest only presented the sacrifice. But Jesus, our high priest, became the sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11-12 says that when Christ came as high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And just as only the high priest could make those sacrifices on behalf of Israel, Jesus is the only one who could make the ultimate sacrifice for us. 
And that's why Peter declared, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the only name. He is the only one. And now it would take many more sermons, another whole series, in fact, to go through each detail of the first covenant and demonstrate how Jesus fulfilled each one perfectly in the second covenant. But I want to share with you just one insight that for me was brand new this past week in studying this. Now you remember the two angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, wings outstretched, looking down at the mercy seat where the innocent blood was sprinkled. Now if you remember those, kind of have those in your mind's eye. I want to ask you the question, was that also foreshadowing something yet to come? Well, we fast forward all the way to Easter morning at the garden tomb. And in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 12, we read this. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Details in scripture matter. Two angels seated where? On either side of where? Where Jesus' body had been. Where his burial cloths still lay, stained red in his innocent blood. Isn't that incredible? For me, I, when, I, when I stumbled upon this in my research this week, it just made me just stop and worship again. There is no detail that God overlooked. Truly, this is the mercy seat. The place where final atonement for all sins, for all time, for all people was purchased. Sprinkled by the, the innocent one, the perfect one, the Lamb of God, the blood of Christ. Many decades ago, there was a gathering of many of the representatives of the world's religions in a huge convention in Chicago. And practically every known religion was represented, and each group was allowed to have a representative speak on their behalf to explain what they believed and why their group was a valuable world religion. During one session, Dr. Joseph Cook of Boston stood up and said, Gentlemen, I beg to introduce to you a woman with great sorrow. Bloodstains are on her hands, and nothing will remove them. The blood is that of murder, and nothing will take away the stain. She has been driven to desperation in her distress. Is there anything in any of your religions that will remove her sin and give her soul peace? Well, a hush fell upon the gathering as the speaker turned from one to the other, but not one of them could give an answer. Not one individual from all of those many world religions replied. And that was to be expected. Because in their teaching ingrained, embedded within it, was the same thread that only good works could attain that kind of peace. And how could anyone ever do enough good in their lives to outweigh the evil of murder? Waiting in the silence, raising his eyes to heaven, Dr. Cook then cried out, I will ask another man the question. John, can you tell this woman how to get rid of her awful sin? And in the silence, as if waiting for a reply, he suddenly cried out, Listen, John speaks. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
You see, my friends, many religions, many people can fool themselves into believing that their good deeds, their good works will be enough to impress God and to somehow enter his presence. But in the tabernacle, God was declaring, on your own merit, you can never, ever be good enough to enter my holy presence. What you need is to have your past covered so that they no longer exist in my eyes. What you need is the blood of an innocent sacrifice to cover your sins. And when Jesus died on the cross, on the day we call Good Friday, he shed his blood for you and for me. And on that next Sunday morning, when he rose gloriously from the grave and he entered that heavenly tabernacle to place his blood on the mercy seat, so that you and I could be pure and white as snow in God's eyes, and so that we could enter boldly into his presence to the place that the New Testament now calls the throne of grace. Because that's what mercy is, my friends. It is God's grace freely poured out to us, not because we deserved it, not because we merited it, but because God, who is rich in mercy, made a way through the blood of the Lamb. To him be the glory. Heavenly Father, so often I hear people say, why do we need the Old Testament? There's just so many things in there I don't understand. It's confusing, the details, the the blood. It almost seems like we're dealing with two different gods. And yet, Lord, as we dig into it, as we dive in, as we look at the details, we see that it was you from beginning to end. One God, working out your incredible, exquisite, detailed plan of salvation from beginning to end. Not one move was wasted. Not one word was thrown away. Every last one of them, every detail was part of the plan. And that you would unveil it in the right time through your Son. And so, Lord, we can only sit here in awe and wonder at your plan And as we hopefully have gained just a little deeper understanding of your incredible plan, a deeper appreciation for it, Lord, I pray that it would just stir our hearts to worship. That you are an amazing, incredible God, who though you are holy, righteous, and pure, and we deserve your wrath and judgment, we deserve to be cast into the eternal lake of fire. Oh, you, God, who are rich in mercy, made a way. Made a way that we could come to the mercy seat, not with our own blood, but by the blood of the Lamb, the perfect one, Jesus Christ, that our sins, though they are as crimson, through him they shall be as white as snow. Thank you, O God. We give you all glory and praise. And may this truth, O Lord, be the joy of our salvation that we would leave with here today, I pray in your name. Amen.